Hello, Katie. Como estas? Ça va très bien. Uh, ben, et vous? Oh, I'm just... just... I don't speak those languages. Um, we are indeed talking about languages again, but this time we are talking about translating in multiple languages and some other stuff too. You are listening to Linear Digressions. So in our last episode, we talked about Google's neural machine translation system and how that's the new backend for Google Translate. And so we talked about the way that there's a neural net that they set up. It's a recurrent neural net. It's got languages. It's pretty good at translating stuff, blah, blah, blah. That's all great. The reason that I think this is worth covering at all, though, is because of what we're going to talk about in this episode. So think of that as just the prerequisites. That was the, that was the, the appetizer. So this is the fun stuff. I think this is the fun stuff. So now let's talk about using this neural net to do multilingual machine translation and what's called zero-shot translation. And so in this context, multilingual means that instead of having one neural net that goes from language A to language B and maybe back again, you have a neural net that can take inputs from many different languages, you know, figure out what language it's looking at on the fly and then take some kind of simple instruction that says, hey, this thing that you just saw in French, please translate that into Spanish. And then it can spit out the, the Spanish translation and the same neural net, depending on if you were to say, please translate that into German, could then spit out a German translation. So doing truly multilingual translations. So it's kind of a, instead of a one-to-one relationship, it's a many-to-many. That's right, that's right. And then zero-shot translation is a a specific example of what's called zero-shot learning. And zero-shot learning, the rough idea is when you have a, let's say, take the example of a classifier, you have a classifier that predicts a class that is never actually seen in its training data. So you can imagine that maybe you have something that classifies dogs and cats, and then you show it a picture of an elephant. Maybe it has some you know, pictures of all of these animals and then text translation that says, oh, a cat has pointy ears and a dog likes to chase frisbees. And then you also have some text that says an elephant is really big and it has tusks and it's gray and it's leathery and it lives in Africa. Even if it's never seen a picture of an elephant before, would it be able to classify a picture of an elephant correctly based on, you know, other evidence that it's seen? Oh. That would be an example of zero-shot learning. So it's kind of it's kind of taking things that it already knows and generalizing them really, really well to be able to make predictions based on things it hasn't seen direct representations of. Right. And so in the context of zero of translation, zero-shot translation is if you imagine, you know, you have, let's say, English to German, you have a bunch of training data that's English to German, you have a bunch of training data that's English to French, but then you explicitly decide to not include any language from French to German. Um, And maybe that's for research purposes, or maybe it's because there aren't actually, well, French to German, there's plenty of examples, but we were talking in the last episode about Japanese to Swahili, Mm -hmm. and how many how many pieces of literature are there out there that you have, you know, both Japanese and Swahili. And especially direct translations, not going through some other, some other uh, language. Well, exactly. Because like Harry Potter, I'm sure has been Japanese, has been uh, translated to both, but it's not translated from one to the other. It's translated, both of those translated from English to those uh, target languages. Right, right. So do you have any like 
something that was originally the source material was in Japanese, you've translated it into Swahili, and there's no English translation that you would go through, uh, you know, as a, as a bridging language of sorts. I gotta say, just briefly, uh, zero-shot learning, it seems like humans are really quite good at this. Yeah, I would say that we are. Uh, it's one of the things that... That we still I, have on the machines? Yeah, yeah. That's <laughs> that's a good articulation of it, actually. Because, <laughs> I mean, you know, machines are getting better and better and better at things, which, in a sense, means that our unique qualities become not unique anymore. Yeah, no, I think that's right. Humans are good at figuring out something, even if they've never seen it before. They can usually do a decent job of figuring out what's going on. Humans are good at being threatened by machines. I don't think that's anything that machines will ever have to learn. <laughs> sure. Um, so, but the idea here in translation is basically, can we get with a, a neural net that has some known holes in its training data? You know, so let's, with the example of English to French, English to German, we'll leave out any French to German training data from this neural net, but can it still do a capable job of translating from French to German anyway, even though it's never actually seen it? Okay, so taking a step back and talking about uh, multilingual translation, so you've got a many-to-many -many relationship between your different languages, and you've got one model that can kind of handle all of those relationships. We talked a bit about neural nets and machine translation in our last episode, so you know we don't need to go over that again, but I guess my question is how... Uh, how portable are neural nets as opposed to other methods when it comes to uh, trying to build something that that can handle those that many-to-many -many relationship? Oh, yeah. So the way that you might have been thinking of the neural net after the last podcast, and a totally reasonable thing, this might even be what they have running in production. I'm not 100% sure. Is something that's what, what we would say is like one-to-one. -one. So it takes right. one input language, creates one output language. And that means you have a neural net that goes English to German, a neural net that goes English to French, a neural net that goes every language to every other language. Right. And so on the one hand, this can be really nice because each of those neural nets can be very um, specialized to the pe peculiarities of the particular language pairs. Every um, training example that you send into each one of those neural nets, you know that it's relevant for the two languages that you care about right? You're not training something that's going to be used for German and English on something that has Spanish in it, because why would you care about that? But the disadvantage of this is that you have then lots and lots of neural nets that you have to think about, because there's lots and lots of language pairs, like the combinatorics of this are pretty heavy. And sometimes you might have language pairs that don't have a whole lot of training data attached to them. So Japanese and Swahili. Mm-hmm. The question, and it's it's mostly a research question at this point, but the results are intriguing, is whether we can build a neural net that's, you know, substantively very similar to the one-to-one -one neural net, but instead it can accept potentially many input languages and create many output languages. The modification that you have to make to, they use the same fundamental structure as the Google Neural Machine Translation System. The modification that they add to this is attaching a little tag to the beginning of a sentence that they want to translate, and that tag tells the system what language they want it to, to be translated into. So for example, let's say you have the phrase, hello, how are you? It will, the, the system can automatically recognize this as English, 
but it doesn't know what language you want to translate it into. Right. So you put some locale code on the beginning, like D-E-D-E for for German at right. the beginning. Yeah. So that's actually exactly what they do. So the little tag for hello, how are you, if you want to translate it into Spanish, is two E-S for like two Espanol. And so then it knows to translate it to hola, hola como estas, right? Oh, that's interesting. I wonder how they handle uh, locale-specific things. Uh, I work on personalized videos at Facebook, and we will have a lot of times, for example, we'll have uh, Brazilian Portuguese, and then we'll also have uh, Portuguese from Portugal. Oh, that's a really good question, actually. And, like, dialects and and things like that were not particularly mentioned here. So I don't right. know. That's a good question. One one side effect of working with all these locales is I know all of the uh, locale codes, <laughs> at least that we support. What's a locale code? A locale code? Uh, so E-N-U-S. E-N is English. U-S is the uh, the location, so the USA, as opposed to E-N-G-B, which is English Great Britain, uh, or E-N-P-I, which is pirate English, at least in Facebook system. What is that? No, it's true. You can change your locale to pirate English in the user interface. And is you that can like use... a joke or is that a it's real a, Oh, it's thing? a joke. No, it's a, okay. it's a, it's a total joke. Um, but yeah, like your friends become your mateys and uh, <sighs> it's fantastic. <laughs> it's fantastic. And I've, I've made it my personal mission to ensure that we support ENPI in all of the personalized videos that we make. So that's a digression. We can get back to the topic at hand, but... <laughs> It is an interesting question to ponder, like, how do you handle locales? Do you treat them as separate languages because there are different idioms in different languages? Uh, or are they related in some way in the system? Or I don't know. Yeah, that's a good question. I don't exactly know. Um, and I think that for the purposes of this exercise, they were really looking at just, like, yeah. by the book languages. Just ignore it. Sure. So we have this idea of we have potentially many different languages uh, that are coming in, many different languages that are coming out. A lot of the paper that they put out is looking at the different ways that you can train the neural nets, actually, because this can make a big difference in the performance, obviously, is exactly how you train. The research question here, then, is basically, can we set up different versions of this neural net so we can really explore the behavior? So we can set up a neural net that's many to one, So you have many different input languages that are creating one output language. And so they do a bunch of experiments on with an architecture like that. You can have one to many. So you can have a single uh, input sentence that's creating many different output sentences. Um, And then there's all these different sort of single pair neural nets that you can then compare to the multi, uh, the multilingual neural nets and comparing how well a single neural net does to the, the multilingual one. And the details of exactly how well the um, single language pair neural net compares to the multilingual one depends on exactly how you do the training. Um, so for example, sometimes with pairs of languages, you'll have a lot more training data for certain pairs like English and German than you do for other pairs like German and Korean. And so the, depending on exactly how you upsample the less common pair that can actually have a big difference on whether the multilingual um, model wins or whether the single uh, language pair wins. And so all this to say that the general trend for the comparing single language pairs to multilingual models 
is that the multilingual models seem to do a bit better, not by a gigantic amount, but by enough that it's kind of intriguing. Um, it's not obvious that a multilingual model should do better than single language pairs. Because uh, again, a multilingual model can't be quite as specialized. It's going to see a lot of data that's not going to be relevant to any particular uh, two languages that it's trying to translate. But on the other hand, the multilingual model has the advantage of seeing lots of different examples of translations. And so you can imagine, for example, that if there's commonalities between mm -hmm. English and German and English and French, then it can learn sort of, you know, those commonalities, those structures, a grammar, you know, some of these like deeper and more fundamental concepts in the way that we, in the way that we communicate. And it can use those to inform even other language pairs that it that it hasn't seen as much of or it's never seen before. You know, in a really odd way, these neural nets, uh, these multilingual neural nets are learning, in a sense, more about human language than any one human on Earth could possibly know. Yes, absolutely. And for this reason, I find myself feeling a very complex emotion of... Uh, feeling very envious of these algorithms. Of course, I have to remind myself these algorithms don't do anything else, and I like my life and all the things that I can do. But gosh, it would be so amazing. I am having such a hard time learning Spanish. It takes so much time to learn a language. And the idea of not just learning one language, but learning a ton of languages and seeing, in a, in a sense, humans' relationship with communication, humans' relationship with each other. I know I'm, I'm getting kind of philosophical here, but I do wonder if if you somehow have the ability to see all of it at once, what kinds of learnings could you take from that about humanity? Yeah, it's a really good point. And I think this is actually addressed fairly interestingly uh, in the latter half of their paper. Before I move on too much to the comparing single you know, single pairs to multi-translations. I should just make clear that depending on exactly what question you're asking, are we trying to figure out what's the best method for one-to-one -one translation, for many-to-one, and for one-to-many? By and large, the multilingual models, the only place where they seem to be doing better is on the one-to-one. -one. And, and so when you're trying to use uh, to push many different languages through the neural net. It does capably, but it doesn't usually do quite as well as the specially trained neural nets that are just designed to do um, those two pairs, uh, the two pairs of languages that you're looking at. Um, so just to be clear about that, like exactly how well the, the multilingual stuff compares to the single language ones depends on exactly the way you're formulating it. But... Yeah, the question of, you know, what is a neural net, especially one of these multilingual ones, learning when it's looking at, you know, this huge multilingual corpus of training data? And I thought this was one of the more interesting parts of the paper. What they did was they actually visualized some of the internal parts of the neural nets. One of the things you might have remembered from the last episode was they had this special attention mechanism that sort of short circuits a couple different, the 
and the top layer of the encoder to the bottom layer of the decoder, or maybe I have that backwards. But it's a special uh, mechanism that allows the neural net to to train faster, to focus more of its attention on the parts of the sentence that are the trickiest to translate. It helps it with rare words. And so what they did was they actually took the data from these attention mechanisms, like what are the weights that you're learning on those connections in the neural net. And something about this attention mechanism, again, I, I find it a little bit mysterious and I don't totally understand it. But the idea is you have all of these weights um, of you know those connections in the neural net. And if you take those weights and you project them down using something like TSNE, which is a, a, a way of reducing dimensionality of certain types of data for like visualization and stuff, then they can actually make pictures of the translations that they're getting out of these things. An example here would be, let's imagine that you have the same sentence in three different languages. So the exact example that they use here in one of the pictures in their paper is the sentence, the stratosphere extends from about 10 kilometers to about 50 kilometers in altitude. We can express this idea in English like I just did. You can also say substantively the same thing in Korean and in Japanese. So you have three different formulations of the same sentence. You put it into the neural net and then you visualize the weights of the attention layer. And you say basically like, what is the neural net kind of chewing on as it's, as it's processing this sentence? And then you can visualize sort of that, I, that attention, <laughs> so to speak. Hmm. And the thing that you see is that for these three different sentences, sort of the dots that are associated with those sentences are all lining up in this little cluster next to each other. For all three of those things, the neural net is successfully figuring out what to, uh, what to I guess, focus its attention more on, even though they're three totally separate uh, strings in different languages. I mean, not just that, but the interpretation here, and it's, again, sort of an open research question still, but the interpretation mm. here is that what we're visualizing is a fundamental concept of what the stratosphere is and where it lives. So that's, you know, that, huh. that concept exists independent of any of our means of communicating it, right? Like that's something that the stratosphere is a thing that exists in the world, whether or not we're talking about it and no matter what language we're talking about it in. And so the idea that we come up with the same or very similar three representations in this neural net for three very different sentences, because they're in three different languages, is suggestive of the idea that there's <laughs> what they're calling the, uh, an interlingua, which is an interesting word for it. Um, the idea that there's concepts that are being represented in this neural net that are mm. independent of the language that they're being communicated in. Yeah, the, the word that came into my mind actually was just now was comprehension. And I mean, I think it's important to not take this and extrapolate too far. I mean, we're not talking about necessarily an intelligence in the in the way that we would talk about an intelligence. I mean, you know, we like to think that we are self-aware and have autonomy and choice in the world and everything. Um, but it seems like this idea is that the, the algorithm is able to, out of these different strings, uh, out of these this text in all these three different uh, locales or languages, it's able to somehow distill the meaning of it. I think that's fair. The thing that's hard for me a little bit is that 
this is all very suggestive, um, but it's hard for me to say like, oh yeah, that's that's a neural net understanding what the idea of the stratosphere is. Um, like, I just don't know that. And that might be because that's not a well-defined idea of what it means for a neural right. net to understand something. But I think that, that it's, this is, if I had to make like a criticism of this paper, it's that there are some things that are really interesting like this, but then I think get slightly oversold in the way that they talk about them. So this is one of those papers that you, as I was reading it, I was kind of like, well, I don't know if we've like totally proven that. I mean, you might be right, but mm-hmm. you know, time will tell. Anyway, but it's a pretty cool idea. The idea that there's some evidence that the same concept being fed into a neural net with different language ends up making the same representation in the neural net. Like that really uh, resonates, I, I think, with me and my idea of what we're doing when we're communicating. It seems like that actually might segue nicely into zero shot translation, which we were talking about earlier, because if you have an algorithm that can distill some form of meaning or at least an uh, interlingua, as you called it, from one language to another, in a sense, that's that that could be your uh, language that you go through. I mean, b- before we were talking about Swahili and Japanese, and maybe uh, a previous way of solving that problem is to translate from Swahili into English or some other language in between, and then from English into Japanese. But in a sense, instead of going through another language, if you could go through that interlingua, or you could also call it meaning, if that is indeed what it is, then you're kind of going more directly from one language to another without having to go through another language with its own idiosyncrasies and everything. I think that's exactly right. Um, And so there were some studies that were explicitly into the idea of zero-shot translation, like do we do better with this multilingual neural net? And there are a bunch of different ways that you can imagine doing this. So one is you can use the phrase-based translation system with bridging. Uh, second is you can use your neural trans- bridging is where we're using, you know, sort of that intermediate language. Um, you can also use a neural system, the neural machine translation, but with bridging. So it's the same idea, but you're just swapping out the neural net for the phrase-based algorithm. You can use the neural algorithm to go straight from Japanese to Swahili. In this particular example, they're actually using uh, Spanish and Portuguese with English as a potential like third, you know, sort of the third wheel here. And so if you're using the neural machine translation system and you have something like we have Portuguese to English, we have English to Spanish, or maybe we have the neural machine translation system, but you have English with Spanish in both directions and English with Portuguese in both directions. Um, Those actually don't do that well. The multilingual neural nets um, are not particularly strong. Um, In fact, they they don't even beat the phrase-based machine translation system. Oh, interesting. Yeah. However, the thing that does really well is, and that wins of all the different permutations of stuff that they've tried, is if you take something that has multilingual neural net, you train it with English to Spanish, English to Portuguese, English to Spanish and Spanish to English, English to Portuguese and Portuguese to English. So all all connections are are made in this triangle, except the one between Portuguese and Spanish. Um, so you basically do a full training of a neural net with that corpus. And then you do just a very small amount of Spanish to Portuguese. Maybe something that's like 1% or 10% as big as 
uh, the, the size of the, the training data for the other languages. So basically you're doing all the training in terms of like learning the concepts and learning. Maybe some basic rules on conjugation or word order, grammar, but not all of them. Yeah, that's right. Um, so it's, it's learning all the rules with English and Spanish and English mm-hmm. and Portuguese. Um, but then doing what they call incremental training. So just a little bit of direct Portuguese to Spanish, which is kind of cheating, right? Because the whole point here is that we're saying that it's never seen Portuguese and Spanish together. So we're like breaking that rule right now. Um, however, you can just give it the tiniest little little nibble, really, of Spanish to Portuguese, Portuguese to Spanish. Um, and then it does really, really well. So kind of intriguing. Still not, still a lot to like learn here. But pretty, I would, I, I don't know if I would call this exactly promising for zero shot learning because, again, the true zero shot learning models don't really do that well. But with just a little, a little bit more, a little bit of cheating, they do incredibly well. So make of that what you will in terms of zero shot translation. But um, it looks like it might not be that far away. Linear Digressions is a Creative Commons endeavor, which means you can share or use it any way you like. Just tell them we said hi. To find out more about this or any other episode of Linear Digressions, go to LinearDigressions.com. And if you like this podcast, go ahead and leave us a review on iTunes so other people get to listen to this content too. You can always get in touch with either of us. Our emails are ben at LinearDigressions.com and katie at LinearDigressions.com in case you have comments or suggestions for future shows. You can tweet us at Lynn Digressions. Thank you for joining us, and we'll see you next time.